does have it all. All of our pre-owned vehicles are Hubler Q certified, which include a 128-point vehicle inspection, a free Carfax vehicle history report, and two warranties. A two-year, 100,000-mile powertrain warranty and a 30-day, 1,000-mile comprehensive warranty. Visit any of our 13 locations today or click drivehubler.com. This afternoon on Query and Company. If you want to take a day off, sure. like PTO usually, I always thought of the PTO day as like a family emergency popped up where you, there's no choice. You have to like, you know what I mean? Like you're a family member is in the hospital or a funeral that falls into PTO day as opposed to a vacation day. Well, I know that you're very excited that we've opened up the HR door for the, That's for right. the department that we don't have. But if it was something like a family member in the hospital, it depends on the leniency of the department. But for some people, yes, a PTO day could be used there. If it's a death, a lot of companies have a bereavement Correct. policy, which that. is separate from okay. the PTO. But yeah, in terms of our work environment, at least in mine and Eddie's case, if you want vacation, you use paid time off. Okay, gotcha. Gotcha. So Eddie off today, he is, but there is no more depressing day in the like American culture calendar than the day you return to work or school right after the holidays. It's awful. Just because it's like, oh my gosh, it is such a long sled now until like spring break NCAA tournament time. But what gets us through it is basketball, basketball season, the NFL playoffs, etc. And that's what we're here to celebrate today along with the holidays. And we'll begin with the NBA last night. And we could go actually, you know what? No, we're not going to go NBA because we're in the festive holiday mood, right? You've got on your Santa hat. We'll disregard the fact that it looks like it might be a Chiefs hat that was picked up at a grocery store in 1993. Who That's okay. Who is to say? How long have you had that hat? What's on the top of it? On the top of it? Oh, that's the Chiefs logo. Okay. Uh, I've had the hat 15 years probably. Have you ever washed it? Yes, I have. Okay. The, the white, it's the lighting actually from here. No, it's not bad. Yeah. The lighting when you had it on made it look like the entire white around it, just it had was a yellow, like a yes, yellow hue to like it. A, a yellow hue, like but it's a the white lighting. cap that you never wash Correct. in the summertime. Correct. Yeah, but it is, is in yep. your defense, it is simply the lighting. Thank you. Uh but Jimmy has on his Chiefs Santa hat. So we'll go with ho 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 Santa in a positive holiday mood here, and we will hold off the Pacers conversation to discuss the fact that the number one ranked team in the land, the Boilermakers of Purdue. And you can sit there and roll your eyes. You can smirk. You can make like funny comments, be sarcastic about the fact that they had a game last night that was not one that necessarily jumps out at you. And you, but look, they've earned it, right? Yeah, they've earned all the praise. They they have five quad one wins already. That's the most of any team. They've in earned top the 25. right to play kind of a blow off. Correct. They, they they've they've earned a break just by that stat alone. Five quad one wins on December twenty second. Purdue could fall off a cliff. They're not going to, but they could fall off a cliff and play 500 basketball the rest of the season, and they're still probably a five seed. I would that, agree that's with how, that. That's how good their resume is Correct, right now. correct. They have put together as impressive a pre-conference resume as you're going to find going back years, yeah. right? It's sensational. And again, it. we'll get into more of this in March. I, I stress this to Purdue fans all the time. One of my best friends in the world, shout out to Nick Koontz, is a Purdue fan, and he's of a mentality where, like, Yes, all this regular season stuff is nice, but the idea of March has become so taxing that you lose sight of enjoying what's happening in front of you. Yes, Purdue will be judged on what they do with this particular team in March. There is a certain aspect, and I've said different iterations of this the last couple of years. There's a certain aspect with this roster, 
how talented Zach Eady is, the leap forwards that you've seen from guys like Fletcher Lawyer and Braden Smith, like those type of moves and growth, it has a, if not now, when, maybe not even a national title, but a Final Four run for Purdue basketball. That's going to come in March. That doesn't mean you shouldn't stop and appreciate what's happening right now, which is one of the more dominant starts to a regular season we've seen in a while. And that took place last night or continued last night, I should say, with Jacksonville. Uh, true or false, and we will ask, by the way, Elijah, our 90-year-old board op, who is actually a 4.0 student at Franklin. But Elijah, you, by your own admission, are a younger man and and a uh, or an older man in a younger man's body, correct? Yeah, and I've been being I've been told that my entire life, so I, I'm used to it at this point, and I okay. just accept it, you know. True or false? The Jacksonville Dolphins that Purdue played last night is a Final Four team historically. I'm gonna say true because it's just. It just makes sense. I don't know why you would ask the question if it wasn't true. That is an outstanding, outstanding reasoning on your behalf. Jimmy Cook, Jacksonville Dolphins, Final Four team historically in their career. True or false? I'm going to trust my elders, even though I think I have Elijah by about six years, and I'm going to say true. Okay. Elijah, I would like for you to fact check this if you could. I'm going off the top of my very old noggin, okay? I believe... They had Artis Gilmore. They had two seven-footers. Artis Gilmore was one. I believe the 1972 Final Four, and I believe they lost to Louisville. Or no, 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 no. Florida State might have been in that Final Four as well. I, I think it was – it's saying here 69-70 because they had Artis right. Gilmore. So, so 70. Rex Morgan, Greg Nelson, Ken Selk. Uh, so was it the 70 Final Four? Yeah. And did they – I want to say that Florida State, Louisville, Jacksonville, and like UCLA, but who was the Final Four, does it say? Still looking. Give me a second. Okay. If this is if I'm even remotely close, then I'm going to tout myself and if I'm not even in the ballpark, then we're just going to move on and we're going to pretend that my weird serendipitous random brain didn't like land. I'm, I'm going to forget about the Jacksonville Dolphins potential final or final four either way, so I'm glad we have those ground. You know, they make that fun little squeaking noise. Yes. The Dolphins. Yes. Uh I thought last <laughs> night what was impressive about Purdue Jimmy was in a game like that where you are allowing everybody when I say everybody, I mean beyond your your core to kind of get some reps. You know, any player that played, with the exception of Morton, actually, Morton 16 minutes didn't score, but everybody else, you know, got some some time to get out there and just kind of go through. It's an important depth-building game, if that makes sense. But you win by 43. You do about everything you need to do. I think right? we have the research. You got the research? Yes. Elijah? So for the 1970 Final Four, it was, I can't even read, St. St. Bonaventure, St. Bonaventure. Bobby, yeah. Jacksonville, okay. New Mexico, and UCLA. The so Bobbies. I wasn't even close. I mean, they could have gone again, but this is from 1970. They actually made it to, yeah, they made it to the, yeah. <laughs> so no. New Mexico, that would have been after uh, Mel Daniels, right? But Correct. But you've got, of course, Lanier was with St. Bonaventure, so I should have known that. I don't know why I was thinking 72. I'll forgive you. They played UCLA in the national championship. Well, Jacksonville did. The safe bet is any team that went to the in the seventies that went or in the sixties or seventies that went that's to the Final Four that's probably yeah. played UCLA. <laughs> that's an L, that's an L to the Bruins, point, more right? likely than not. Yeah, but nonetheless, it looked uh, you're, easy. It looked it looked easy, right? For like, Purdue, like, right? Like, you read any headline going into that game and any headline afterwards, it's all oh, Purdue survives a scare before the Christmas holiday. And I mean, look like. You don't undercut anything that's on the schedule because Purdue has shown time and time again, we mentioned the five quad one wins, that they are deserving of the national attention, the national praise, the top ranking that they're getting. But yeah, you don't want to have a letdown game, and it, it really never was. And you continue to 
get other guys minutes. I mean, Miles Colvin, who at times has been a nice bench player, gets 17 minutes last night. He scores 11 points. Trey Kaufman-Wren, just 15 points in 19 minutes. Zach Eady, just a quick, calm, cool, easy day at the office. 18 points for him very early on in 24 minutes of play. That's as good of a script as you could have wrote for Purdue when you welcome in a team like Jacksonville where all you're really worried about is, okay, is there a lapse in focus or lapse in judgment with the holidays around? Because, again, these are 18, 22-year-old, 23-year-old kids. Where's the attention at? Purdue took care of business. That's that's great. Their next test, again, is going to be through Big Ten play, but it's not a joke. I'm being serious. With where they are with their resume, all things are, right now, sunny with rainbows up in West Lafayette. How do I confuse Jacksonville with North Carolina? Because the 72 Final Four was Florida State, Louisville, North Carolina, and UCLA. How did I get Jacksonville in there with, instead of Carolina? I mean, both are very prestigious. So, <laughs> yeah, the, the, the <laughs> Dolphins were so prestigious that they decided to actually use their mascot in Blue Chips, the worst basketball <laughs> movie ever made. Which, if you were around when Blue Chips came out, and everybody was so geeked because they filmed it in Frankfurt and Knight was in it and the IU basketball team and Matt Nover and everything else. And they did like the premiere of it at Bloomington and people were showing up wearing Western University garb and shaking pom-poms. And we everybody packed in and we went to watch the movie and it reminded me of this. When I was really little, we lived in Shelbyville, Indiana. And on Highway 9, they were filming a like state police safety film on Highway 9 just outside of our little subdivision in Shelbyville, Indiana. This would have been roughly 1977. And we all packed our lunches and went down there to watch, and there was a horrible, legitimate, truthful accident on Highway 9 during the filming of said thing, and they rallied all us kids up and took us right back home again. And that's kind of what the premiere of Blue Chips felt like when we were in college. Everybody went. And then we saw before us on the screen two hours of a total disastrous crash of the worst, most uncomfortable movie of all time, and everybody went home and went, okay, that actually sucked. It uh, two, was cheesy as hell. Two things. One, you clearly have not seen Five Nights at Freddy's. Uh, I wouldn't recommend it. And two, the only nugget I have from Blue Chips, and this has been on a number of documentaries since then, is that allegedly, at least per the two involved, that is where the like seeds were of the magic drafting Penny Hardaway because Shaq was in that film and Penny was also in Blue Chips. I could see that. And they've, they've said directly, like, Shaq was very impressed and, and Penny, like, wanted to be in as many scenes as possible with Shaq because he wanted to impress him enough to tell the Magic, hey, no, get this guy. This is the guy that I want. Now, again, didn't work out for Orlando long-term. We know how that ended, but Boy, that's I'll cool. tell you what. Penny Hardaway, though, pre-injury. Oh, man. People forget how good that Magic team was that the Pacers lost to in the 95 Eastern Conference Finals. I mean, Shaq just entering prime, Penny, and then you had, you know, along with it on that team. Horace Grant was on that team, wasn't he? Yeah, Brian Shaw, I think, was on that team. Nope. I mean, they had... Nick the, Anderson. That that series where the game where Smiths hit the game winner, people forget there was a series of like four game-winning plays in succession of one another in like a 35-second stretch. I mean, it was incredible. And it was Shaw, I think. Penny hit the last one. Shaw hit the second to last. You know, Byron Scott had hit the shot in game one in that series. That that was a series loaded with big shots. But it was a veteran Pacers team and a young, uber-athletic Orlando team. And that was a really good team. Uh, Indiana last night. Kind of same thing, right? Taking care of business. North Alabama at home. 
And for Indiana, I think the question was going to be coming off of that Moorhead game that you can kind of understand the wind being taken out of their sails a little bit in that game because they didn't think that it was going to be like that with Moorhead and that they would have to rally the way they did. And there was a lot of negative talk about Indiana after that. So I thought last night to be able to come out, Malik Wardu continues to show um, a developing skill set. But Jimmy, I have not worn the Santa hat, right? Okay. I mean, I'm saying on this show, you have not seen me wearing a Santa hat. Right. Correct? I saw you play the role of Santa, but I've not seen you wear the hat. Correct. correct. So when I played the role of Santa Jake. Yes. And during the role of Santa Jake, when we had, and, and believe me, we've done research on this, and it was a wonderfully uh, well-received segment. I mean, and kids in particular loved it. It was right? great in the focus groups and the lead-up to That's it. That's what I mean. Like, people just went nuts. Yeah. They, they went bonkers over it, right? It yeah. was the Plinko of this program. Mm -hmm. So, when I was doing Santa Jake, and we were allowing people to call in to make a Christmas wish list for Santa for that would benefit their favorite team. What was the overriding theme that people wanted out of Indiana basketball? What is the people that were IU basketball fans when they were able to sit next to, and depending on size, in the lap of or next to Santa Jake, and they said, what I want for my basketball team is the following. What's the number one requested item on Santa wish list for the Indiana basketball family? Give me some sharpshooters, Jake. Give me some outside shooting, baby. Malik Renew, four for four from beyond the stripe. McKenzie Ambaco is the one that we've been told is like the greatest shooter ever, and it still has yet to come, but he's starting to hit them a little bit. Two for six last night. Galloway, two for four. All told, Indiana 12 of 24 from beyond the stripe, and Malik Renew was the one carrying the load there for most of it. 25 last night for the forward. Again, is this a developing part of his game that they go to more and that they were able to kind of open up and by – even taking away a little bit, because what you need is with Khalil Ware, you know that when Ware is going to get the ball down low, he's probably going to be doubled. That kind of took Ware out of the equation last night. But if you are able then to sprinkler system, as I call it, spray it around, he's just got to have options on where to go with it. And it's the same complex that plagued Purdue last year, right? Like I know that Zach Eady is like I'm not. I'm not embarrassed Correct. to say once that. Zach is a better player, but once you send doubles and triples towards your offensive weapon, you need other guys that can threaten. And that's something that when you look at March, when you look at Big Ten play, if teams are going to key in on Khalil Ware, you need guys like Renew, guys like Galloway, guys like Mbako to be able to step up and hit shots. And I don't even, and I know you're not saying this either, Jake, they don't need to hit 12 of them a game. When you look at where they're at prior to that ball game, they're making about four a contest. If you can tick that number up to like six, maybe seven per game that are made shots, but you're not necessarily increasing the volume at a high level, with how they're playing defensively, that's enough. Like, like that's enough to be a good quality tournament team. I know it's not the standard in Indiana, but this is an imperfect team. It's still finding its way. If you're able to just improve it just a little bit, that Christmas list just gets one check on sharpshooter, that's enough. I think it is with this team. I I have always felt that of the the post night era for Indiana, the most underrated player to have played at Indiana. They've had great players there. The one that was a great player, but I still feel 
that when people historically mention great Hoosiers, people talk about Eric Gordon. Okay, you know he was there a year and he stood in the corner and he hit big threes and he had some cool dunks. Romeo Langford, he did half of that. He stood in the corner and he hit threes. Um, you know they've had, like I said, great players, right? I mean, DJ White was a great player. They've had guys that you know, Cody Zeller and Victor Oladipo were great players. Christian Watford hit a huge shot. The guy that you never hear people talk about that was a fabulous talent for Indiana, and I think with each passing year, you you realize how good he was and, and a little bit more reality as to how good he was sets in, even though people don't talk about him in sports bars. I want to know how many Indiana fans right now listening to me talk are saying to themselves out loud, I know exactly who he's going to mention. And there's a reason I'm mentioning it with this particular team. Because I think there's a little bit that Khalil Ware can do like this guy. Khalil Ware is probably even around the rim more offensively gifted. The game has changed certainly in the form of 20 years. It, it's changed a lot. But when Indiana went to the national championship game in 2002 with Dane Fife and Kyle Hornsby and Jared Odell and Tom Coverdale, and Donald Perry, and Jeffrey Newton, and George Leach, and A.J. Moye. Those guys were very good players. That was a very good team, a very good team, of very talented players and good recruits when they came in. But the straw that mixed that drink, the absolute pillar in the middle of all of it, and the guy that does not get enough credit is Jared Jeffries. Because Jared Jeffries was an athletic big that could put the ball on the floor and get himself a little bit of space in the middle. But what he did that was absolutely outstanding, absolutely outstanding, was he was the best, in my opinion, out of the post, low post passer to the exterior that Indiana's had in the last 20 years, 25 years. And their offense, essentially, that John Trelor came up with and Mike Davis was throw it into Jeffries, let him go to work, and then have any of those guys around the arc, and then it's like a sprinkler. It just oscillates around and sprays to whichever shooter is open and needs to be watered. And whether that was Kyle Hornsby, now it helped to have really good shooters. But with chicken and egg theory, which which came, which came, was it? Did they have really great shooters? And therefore, Jeffries was allowed to operate down low because everybody had to, to keep those shooters at bay? Or was Jeffries so talented down low that it facilitated for wide-open looks elsewhere. And with this particular group, with Khalil Ware, if they can find, if if Mbako can find a shot, if Renew can step out and, and hit at that sort of a level, you do have a guy in Ware that has the athleticism and the footwork that he down low can make that quick decision between either score or dish it around. Galloway would be another one in that mix. But you got to have reliable guys that you're throwing out to, Jimmy. You have to. That's something that when you look back on last year's Indiana team, and it wasn't as prominent because you had such talented, clearly NBA lottery guard play in Jalen hood Shafino. but Trace Jackson Davis was a damn good passer, especially his last year in Indiana. Like His vision was something that got praised all the time, but oftentimes the open looks weren't knockdown shots. They were missed triples, and that's kind of been the – I'll say the biggest issue for IU basketball the last couple of years, but it's been one of them, Jake, is that 
you have threats down low that are also great passers, but you need confidence and you need guys that can knock down. And I'm, I'm right there with you. Even if it's like, if you're going to take 24 threes a game and you're this Indiana team, yeah, you better hit them at a 40 or 50% clip. But if you're only taking 15, and like I said, you're hitting five or six of them instead of three or four of them, that makes a difference in terms of stylistically how you want to play and what you can open things up. You're exactly right. Okay, so what we're going to open up, there are two things I want to do today. First is we're going to talk about the Pacers last night, and we're going to do it next. But also, I used to do this, Jimmy, and I think this is passe. Okay? I used to do this on radio on this day. Santa Jake? I used to do it actually on on Black Friday, I think, when I used to do shows on that day. But but we'll do it for today. But I think it's passe because what percent of holiday shopping do you think people actually do by leaving their house and going into a store as opposed to ordering online? Throughout the year or throughout this holiday stretch? No, right now. I bet it's 70 online. No, it's probably more than that. I bet it's 80 online, 20 brick and mortar. Okay. So, so this... I used to have so much fun doing this part of radio on this day. We still can. But I wonder if it, but here's, let me tell you what it is. I used to love having people either call in or text me with the item that's the last thing they need to buy that they desperately are looking for and they can't find it anywhere. And then it was like a, literally we did like Tradio. People would call in and say, oh my gosh, like my... My aunt is desperate for like a porcelain, you know, whatever gravy, such and such, and I from Crate and Barrel, and I have not been able to find one anywhere. And then somebody listening goes, "Oh my gosh, I was literally just at the TJ Maxx in Greenwood, and they had one on the shelf right now. Let me call in and tell them." And we would match wits for people and like play air traffic control to let people know where they could find their impossible item. But I feel like now. That's probably passe because everybody just uses the internet, right? Correct. And even with your... But at this point, you're screwed. You can't order right no, now and get something I, delivered. I looked at some stuff, like not necessarily gifts, but just I looked on Amazon at a couple things last night. And yeah, it's over. The pri- like the Amazon delivery drivers need a break. You're past the Christmas deadline at Correct. this point for pretty much everything. Correct. So if you need... So, so here's the thing. And, and we can do this without it interrupting the flow of the show, Okay. We're all about structure here. Now, I'm going to give out, again, my cell phone number. And if there's an item that you're out right now desperately trying to find, you text me. I'll mention it on the air, and, and then people can text me in and say, oh, my gosh, I know exactly where that is. And it, if we get one hit. It's a W. It's a W. We're here to help. We're here to help, right? And I know how it is. I know that we have female listeners. We've got like six of them at last count. But. In terms of guys that are listening to the show, they're not working today. They're driving around frantically trying to start and finish their Christmas shopping in one fell swoop. So 317-523-9288. Okay? That's my cell number. So you text me right now and you let me know what you need for the holidays and we'll see what we can do. 317-523-9288. Very simple. And, and, And that's what we're here to do, Jimmy. We're here to help, right? We, we are giving guys, we're compassionate guys, and when it comes to slackers who are just now starting their Christmas shopping, we're not asking what the hell's wrong with them. We're not asking what's taking so long. We're not reminding them that it wasn't raining when Noah built the ark. We're, we are just helping out and doing what we can for those that are 
prolific prognosticator, or, or uh, excuse me, not prognosticators. Um, procrastinators. Procrastinators. Thank you. Help us help you. Help us help you. That's right. That's what we're here to do. And speaking of the alliteration using the letter P, we're going to talk about the Pacers, and we're going to do it next. Joining us now, one of the very best covering the NBA. You hear him as a host, an analyst, and a producer over at The Athletic. You can follow him on Twitter at Dave Defour NBA. He is Dave Defour. Nice enough to take some time with us. Dave, first of all, Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays to you. Thanks for making the time as always. And secondly, one of the reasons I've been wanting to have you on was you are the living embodiment of the national media seeing the way the Pacers play and having a helter-skelter, Jekyll and Hyde-like vibe because you see them play defense maddeningly one way and then you're drawn right back in with what they do offensively. Is that a fair way to summarize your, your feelings on the Pacers at this point? Yes, they are the greatest show on earth and absolutely infuriating to watch at the same time. You know, I've been saying, and I've been reusing this line, and somebody threw it at me like uh, on Twitter one day, and I love it so much. I can't remember who it is. I wish I could credit them. But the Indiana Pacers are the most watchable team in the league right now because every single night you get to see the league's two best offenses. It's absurd the way that they play defense, but I love to watch them score. We were talking about this, Dave, a couple of minutes ago, and I want your thought on it. I mean, there is no doubt that they are offensively at a level that is pretty mesmerizing. But clearly, that's not enough because they're going to have to start guarding. You can't give up 150 a night. It's great to score 148 unless you're giving up 150, right? Can they maintain – is it even possible to maintain anywhere near the same level of offensive efficiency while also turning things up defensively in terms of your pressure and trying to slow on the other end? I mean, I think it's unlikely, just the amount of effort. That, that you have to put out on the defensive end. And if you see, like, it's almost a part of their strategy, it seems, to allow teams to get into the paint and get get shot attempts up, not necessarily letting them score, because I do think that they try. Um, but they, they want opposing offenses to hurry up a bit, and that gives the Indiana Pacers offense more bites at the apple. And when you're as efficient as they are, they are banking – on more possessions equaling more wins for them because they they are guessing we can score more often than you can. Yeah, we can't defend, but you can't defend us. And so I I think that this is kind of their strategy for this season. But ultimately, once they're ready to try to be in title contention, which is a year or two out, this is a good, young, fun team, and they they certainly could use a few more pieces. Uh, This isn't a bad way to go. It at least gives you a chance to be in a lot of games that you wouldn't be otherwise. You know, you know you're going to have these nights where you get crushed for 64 points by Giannis, but it's Giannis. You know, he, he's essentially Shaq, but can run really fast and, and dribble, right? And with the, the modern rules, he's going to get a lot of buckets. But for the most part, they're able to hang around against some teams that are much better because of that offense. So I, I think that you definitely are correct that it's going to require more energy on the defensive end, which is going to take away from their offense. But the other thing is going to slow them down, which takes away from their offense. Wearing opposing teams out 
running on makes, running on misses. I mean, this team just goes and goes and goes. And that's been a huge tactical advantage for them offensively. So there will certainly be a trade-off if they start to play defense. Dave, there are probably players, and I'm going to trust on your you know, outside objectivity here because we in Indiana watch the Pacers and there are certain players that we consider to be, we're like, oh man, they can't part with that guy because look at what he's doing. <laughs> I think we know that Halliburton is obviously indispensable, okay? Yeah. Give me a player on the Pacers roster that the style statistically makes them look like they would be almost irreplaceable, but in reality, perhaps it's the system that is putting those numbers up as much as the player themselves, and as a result of that, they might be more expendable than people who are diehard fans realize. I would say just about everybody except for Miles Turner. You know, this is a system that's based on Tyrese Halliburton, and I think if you you could even – maximize it more like if Ovi Toppin was a was a legit high volume knockdown spot up guy this offense goes even higher uh so I, I think that what you have is a great system but the system is actually just the player of Tyrese Halliburton and so almost every single player on the roster has benefited from the attention that he draws uh from opposing defenses I mean the way that he handles a double team creates open looks for every single other player on the court. So I would say all of them. And to a certain degree, you're getting a little bit of money balling with the statistics. If you think back, remember the process Sixers and Michael Carter-Williams when he won Rookie of the Year, and it was just, let's play fast, you're going to accumulate a lot of stats, and then they flipped them. It's sort of like what the Oakland A's used to do with closers before people understood that saves are kind of a BS stat. And, and I think that there is certainly a little bit of that with the Pacers where it's like you look at the numbers and you say, wow, that guy's extremely productive. And you have to break him down and go back and look at the film and say, oh, well, this is a product of really fast pace of play and not having to play any defense. What's this guy going to look like? But I, I think that that's everyone on the roster outside of Halliburton and Miles Turner. Miles Turner, and I, it's funny to say about the worst defense in the league, how bad would they be on defense without Miles Turner? Oh, I mean, I mean, it would just it would be uh, like peewee uh, basketball. It, it I, they be, basically uh, a disaster. I mean, Dave, the reality is this: the Pacers let everybody come up the driveway and through the front yard, and Miles Turner is the last guy that's there to protect the doorbell so that you can get a nap. You know what I mean? Like he's literally the only guy <laughs> on the porch, right? Right, exactly, and, and he does his best, but you know it's an impossible task. So, um, yeah, I. I I think that there's been some discourse around this because of the pace of play and they're scoring so efficiently. Um, with a lot of these guys, though, I mean, everybody that, that plays for them is, is a legit NBA rotation player. They don't, they don't really run out any scrubs, and that helps too. So I, I would say you can't just take those guys and plug them into other situations because they're benefiting clearly from, from playing with Halliburton. But they're good players. they got a good roster. It's just not the one that's going to get you to a title. Dave DeFore is our guest, covers the NBA for The Athletic. Dave, all throughout the in-season tournament, I kept telling myself that, yes, this pace is fun, and I think in this NCAA tournament-style setup for the NBA Cup, it works. I don't know if it works in a seven-game series. When you look at the way the Pacers play, and let's say that they're that they're on, they're on like they were in the in-season tournament, is this style not to win a title, but like to win a series, like a first round series that they get like the six seed and they're matched up with the three? Like, is it possible 
to win a seven-game series stylistically this way, or is it too easy to eventually adjust to to where if you slow it down enough or if you force them to a point where they're not going to stop you defensively late that you're ultimately going to win in six? Yeah, no, this will not work in a in a multiple-game series. Number one, the, the scouting stuff gets way better once you get to the playoffs. But number two, you're just going to have to work so much harder because – it's not the regular season and the defense is going to go at you even harder than they do in the regular season. Uh, you're going to have shortened rotations. So better players play more in the playoffs. And that's something that, you know, when you look at Indiana, their better players aren't as good as other teams, better players. And that matters a lot more in a, in a multiple game series, but you're, you're onto something with the single elimination stuff, single elimination. You should absolutely say we're going to bank on uh, having a high efficient, game and the other team not being able to score with us that that works in NCAA it works in high school basketball it works anytime you're outgunned you want to play a high variance style the problem is and this is why the NBA has a seven game series as the basis for its playoffs because you want the better team to win more often than not and in a, in a best of four out of seven that's going to usually happen in the NBA and so you know this is a style where if you cannot defend like we know that Scoring is very important in the playoffs, being able to consistently score, but it's very much about the defense and the style of, uh, of play change that occurs there. Can you score against playoff defense? I don't know if this team will be able to do that, but I know they can't get stops, and so that's where they're going to run into problems. How far are they from that? Do you look at that as being a player away, or is it an entire philosophical change with pieces added in? I mean, from a philosophical standpoint, I know Rick Carlisle knows how to coach defense. Right, so right. I'm not actually worried about that, right? Um, but it's definitely going to be players, you know. Uh, I think that they they could use a good defensive-minded stretch four. You know, if they had a guy to kind of help, um, even to play, maybe a guy who could sort of play drop and allow Miles Turner to roam the baseline a little bit more as a help guy, where I actually think that's where he's ideal, is coming in as that help side blocker. Um that could help, but a three and D wing would be great. Like if this team was to swing a trade and I'm not a big trade guy, cause I, I like to love the one you're with. I, I think it's more fun to watch a team grow and develop uh, and, and make trades during the off season or, or changes or whatnot. Uh, but if they were to make a trade for like OG Ananobi, you could see, you could just see, I say that name and you immediately know how it changes that team. It makes her tougher, especially on the perimeter. And Tyrese Halliburton is probably never going to be, Maybe an average defender is the best you can hope for with him just because of length and athleticism, but he's never going to be a great one. So you're going to have to make up for deficits at the point of attack, and if you can if you can bolster your wing defense, that perimeter defense, you might even get enough guys so that you can take Halliburton off the ball, and now all of a sudden he's able to conserve even more energy, and maybe he's a 30-point-a-game guy when you're able to do that. So there's, there's some team-building options for them that improve them on both ends. Uh, but the biggest thing they need to worry about is a, is a 3 and D wing because they don't have a single lockdown guy. And, and it's hard. If you look at NBA teams, you know, that have won titles, every single one of them have a guy that you can point and say, go guard that guy. And, I mean, even last year, I mean, the, the Nuggets are underrated in how good their defense was. They had a couple of guys who could just go guard a guy. And so uh, until you get that, you've really got no hope of making a conference finals or a finals, in my opinion. Dave DeFore is our guest from The Athletic talking about the NBA. Dave, not related to the Pacers, but it fascinates me. I, I Detroit seemingly has some players 
<laughs> I, like, I, I don't get it because I think Cunningham's a nice player. I think Ivy's got some skill. They've got a couple of veterans that have been on teams that have won that that can you know shoot the basketball. How in the world have they lost twenty five straight? This is an epic case of demoralization. You know, th- this team is kind of like they look like they quit. Totally, no, totally. And, and and Dave, they were here when they were like twelve games into it, and they already looked like a tail between their legs. You know what I mean? It's, look, we're looking at the 25 games, but a lot of these guys have been there. You know, this is Cade Cunningham's third season of this. This team has won four games since they traded for James Wiseman last year at the deadline. Four games in ten months. I, I, it's just absurd, the, the level of disgusting uh, loser mentality that this team is carrying around. I mean, it, it really is. It's bad for the NBA. Uh, it's great for me because I think it's it's hilarious. It is uh, unreal. I mean, team be this bad. Like when they, you have NBA have fans chanting "sell the team," that's a problem, right? I mean, he should probably sell the team. Um, when you look at like the ineptitude that that they've sort of operated under, um, but also I don't care what he does with his money. I mean, the NBA needs bad teams too. It's just a shame that the Detroit Pistons are this bad because, you know, in, in my opinion, the Pistons should be up there and the Bulls should be considered like the Lakers, Knicks, and Celtics. I mean, those are – they were premium brands, you know, when I was growing up. You know, the 80s NBA, which is really what built the foundation for the current NBA, the Detroit Pistons were very important. So I think that for the historical uh, look back at the league, like if you're just saying, hey, what's up with the Pistons? Why is this team now the worst – organization maybe in american professional sports that's how bad they are and you have to go and say wow how did how did they fall so far how did the league allow this to happen i mean it's gotten that bad but but clearly their gm should be gone he's done a poor job of roster building i don't know if i agree with you on kate cunningham anymore i mean he's definitely not a number one guy i'm not sure he's a number two guy but it's impossible to tell because there's not really many nba players that are around him like, what does this guy look like if he's on an average bad team? Like, if you put him on the Wizards, does he look better? Probably. You know, Kyle Kuzma would be uh, maybe the best player on the Pistons right now if they had him somehow. This team is just – it's sad. And, you know, Asar Thompson's been a great story to start the season. But his rookie season is going to be lost because of this twenty-five now 25-game losing streak that's probably going to hit 30 games. They may not win a game until February. <laughs> They have an inter-squad scrimmage in March, which they're actually looking forward to, right? Um, <laughs> hey, Dave, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you – I'm very proud of this, okay? Dave DeFore is our guest from The Athletic. There's not many things in my career that I've been proud of, but this is one of them. I, I coined a term once. I think – I'm pretty sure I'm the one that made it up. I don't think I heard it elsewhere. Um, and I want you to give me an example of this guy, okay? Okay. It's a, it's a term I came up with called a 2025 guy. Do you know what a 2025 guy is? Uh, he's going to get you 20, 25 points a night. A guy that is destined to score 20 points per game on a 25-win team his entire career. <laughs> like, Ricky yeah. Davis was a twenty twenty-five guy, okay? I, I hate yeah. to say it because he was beloved here, but Al Harrington might have been a twenty twenty-five guy. Give me an example in today's NBA of a twenty twenty-five guy. I mean, it, Kyle Kate Kuzma Cunningham? does come to mind. Yeah, Kuzma right? definitely Kate comes Cunningham? to mind, right? 
Yeah, Cade Cunningham. You know what? I'm not sure. Because what's funny is a 20, a 2025 guy, I love that, by the way. Thank you. A 2025 guy could be a great 12-point-a-night guy for a 50-win team. Well, because like, Kyle Kuzma could go be Robert Ory somewhere. Here's the thing, honestly, like, and this is where Kyle Kuzma falls into my category. And I don't know Kyle Kuzma, so maybe this is unfair, Dave. But one of the Jake Quarry qualifiers of the 2025 guy is that you get the feeling they're kind of perfectly excited about being a 2025 guy as opposed <laughs> to a 1255 guy. I yes. Well, there's there's more money in the 2025 because <laughs> yeah, you're of right. contract. So, you're right. You know, I talk about this all the time, man, with NBA defense. Like, one of the things, like, NBA defense is called in a way that disencourages defense. Like, it, you were disincentivized to actually play defense because you get fouls called on you all the time. If you get fouled out, you can't score points, and points is what gets you paid. So, of course, nobody plays defense. And, of course, they go harder on offense. And, of course, you know, you have this Olay situation and scoring is out of control because guys still get paid for points. So, you know, you're never going to change the mindset of a 2025 guy into being a 1250 guy until the incentives change financially. And, and as far as Kyle Kuzma goes, man, look, I don't begrudge that guy for showing up to work and wanting to make the most money. I, I mean, I'm, in, I'm team Kuzma when it comes to that. Heck yeah. and so sign me up as a 2025 guy if it means I'm going to be more financially stable. But it is a shame for, for, you know, like for me because I look at it more holistically and I, I don't think about the money part of it. And I wish Kyle Kuzma was on a contender because I actually think he's a very good player. He's an underrated defensive player. I mean, he's an above-average defender, guards really well on the wing for a guy his size, and can shoot in clutch situations. I mean, he has a, a – for a short career as he has, he's got a lot of game winners, game tying, and, and, and crunch time baskets. I mean, the guy just hits big shots. He, he would be great. I, the Warriors could really use him right now. I mean, the, the Lakers could really use him right now. The Clippers. I mean, there's a bunch of teams that could use him. And, and, but I'm with you. I think he's a, happy being a 2025 guy. He gets to wear whatever goofy outfit to the arena he wants every night. You know, the team social media. He's the star of the team. Right. Kyle Kuzma is essentially the star of the team because Jordan Poole should be, but he's such a complete embarrassment he can't be. Um, I think if you're Kyle Kuzma, you're probably really happy right now. Hey, a 2025 guy pays you 20 to 25, and a 1255 guy pays you 12, right? That's, the, that's pretty much how that's it works. Right. Um, That's right. Although even that is going up, man. The, I know. Twelve fifty guys could be making twenty million, man. Like, I know. NBA that that money keeps going up. It's pretty amazing. Dave DeFord, the Athletic Hour guest. Appreciate the time here during. I know what's kind of a busy time. You might even have to finish up your holiday shopping. But one other thing for you, I'm curious about. Um, you back to Indiana and back to the Pacers. Dave, you know this, and I can tell you. I mean, when they built the the St. Vincent Center across the street from the field house, that's a state-of-the-art facility for players to be able to go in and get treatment and food and everything else, and they've done everything they can in Indiana to try to offset the fact that they are in a cold-weather, middle-market city to attract players. And they feel that Tyrese Halliburton is finally the magnet that might be able to lure players in their prime to want to play for the Indiana Pacers. Is that overly optimistic or is there in fact reality to the, to this playing style being one that is of appeal to big stars? Well, I think if you look at Milwaukee, you see a blueprint, you know, uh, Giannis, uh, 
great pickup for them, transformed the franchise. Now Damian Lillard is there. And Damian Lillard could have gone elsewhere. I mean, you know, he, he could have just said, no, nah, I'm not going to do this. I'm not, I'm not down with this. And he could have stopped the trade. I mean, let's not – I just want to be very clear here that the way NBA power dynamics work, Damian Lillard absolutely had to sign off on that trade. It just would not have happened otherwise. So that is a blueprint that I think Indiana can follow. If you are good, you can get good players. That, that is it. Small market doesn't matter if you are good. Um, Indiana, you're not attracting people with the taxes like Florida does. Um, you, you don't have the, the sunny weather. But during the NBA season, you travel a lot. So, yeah, you're going to be home in Indy for some bad weather, but you're going to be gone a lot too. I mean, I, I think that the weather part of this is a little bit overrated. It's all about championships, man. If you make players think that they could win a championship, they will sign there. But the bigger thing is right now, like free agency is just dead. The players have figured out that there's more money in playing out these extensions and then asking for a trade. You just got to get in the mix on that. I mean, this is kind of what they pulled off with Halliburton, right? Like they were able to, to get rid of Sabonis, who they needed to make a decision on, and they were already late doing. And they picked up Tyrese Halliburton, who, you know, might be a generational uh, building block for them. And that's a, that's a huge swing. Now they got to do it again because free agency just isn't a reality anymore. Even for, for big market teams, there's just no free agents out there. If you look at the new CBA, uh, it's, it's very difficult. Like, you don't want to be in that second tax apron, but you do kind of want to be in that first if you're a contender. And so making trades allows you to just more cap flexibility. You know, you get guys with their bird rights. So if you get a guy with two years left and he's got bird rights, you can re-sign him you, through the, the function of the CBA, whereas – Signing a guy outright in free agency is actually very difficult, especially when you're talking max players, like we're talking $50, $60 million. So clearing up that kind of cap space in and of itself is tough. So I think for Indiana to build, they need to obviously build around Halliburton, but they need to just land a bunch of trades that are very similar to what they did. they got to find guys that, you know, in his timeline that are going to hit their prime around the same time as him and just take some swings. And, you know, there's some hard decisions that are going to have to be made. You're going to be, you know, probably have to trade out a bunch of draft picks that, that you don't want to lose. But ultimately, that's team building in the NBA now. So I think that the market dynamics are as diminished as they've ever been in the NBA for small markets to be able to be competitive. But you have to prove that you're a franchise that is built to win. You have to have some winning habits. If you look at what Phoenix did, that 8-0 in the bubble was a game changer for them. You know, I, I think this – in-season tournament run with all the attention Indy got, if they can finish the season strong, be in the playoffs, not the play-in. They need to be in the top six. And if they can do that, I think that they could get some guys this summer that really could put them into that top four home court advantage conversation as early as next season. He's Dave DeFore. He covers the NBA for The Athletic. Dave, NBA Christmas Day, hand-in-hand for a lot of people. It's the unofficial start to the NBA season, even though the NBA is trying both with the in-season tournament and other things, to get away from that. But kind of a two-part question. Bucks, Knicks, Warriors, Nuggets, Celtics, Lakers, Sixers, Heat, Mavericks, Suns. How do you feel about the slate overall as you look through there? What stands out to you? And then secondly, what's the pulse of the NBA, both like the teams themselves and the league itself, in the NFL's now hostile takeover that's happened the last couple years of a day that I previously cherished as an NBA holiday? 
Yeah, you know, the NBA sort of runs scared from the NFL and college football at every opportunity. I mean, we had a few Sundays here recently with no games at all. Um, you know, they moved, they got away from the, uh, the Thursday night game because of Thursday night football. I mean, there's so much stuff happening that is just scared money with the NBA when it comes to broadcasting their stuff. They don't want to look bad compared to the NFL. And I think that they're doing this the wrong way. Um, everything is a niche now. You know, if you're an NBA fan, you're going to watch NBA basketball on Christmas Day. And if you're an NFL fan, you're now going to watch football. Now, did, did the NFL absolutely see an opportunity to steal some of the NBA's pie? Yes, 100%. I haven't heard anything. I mean, I think the NBA is scared of the NFL, but I haven't heard anything in particular about Christmas. I mean, I'm sure that they were pulling their hairs out when, when that was first decided. As far as the slate goes, you know, if you go and look, there was only one team that changed from last Christmas to this Christmas. Memphis is out. Miami's in. Miami made the finals, obviously, and Memphis, if John Morant wasn't, uh, you know, flashing guns on Instagram, they might still be there. Uh, this is more of a problem to me than anything else, uh, but it's an impossible task. You're trying to – what 10 teams have compelling individual parts that we can broadcast on this big day? And you start to look around the league, and there are a lot of them. But you're not going to have a Christmas Day without LeBron James and the Lakers. You're not going to have a Christmas Day without the Warriors and Steph Curry. So it gets to be a little bit of a, well, they did the best they could do, I think, with, with, you know, given the circumstances. But they almost need to think about expanding it. And what I would do is the next group of teams that have a shot at playing Christmas Day games, and that would be like the Indiana Pacers because they have Tyrese Halliburton. Um, you know, the Orlando Magic, uh, maybe the Houston Rockets. You, you pick some of these up-and-coming teams, and you showcase them on Christmas Eve as a lead-in to Christmas Day. And you tell the NFL, we're not scared of you because NBA people, basketball people, want to see the ba- basketball over Christmas. So that's what I would do. I would personally take it as a challenge and go at them. But, you know, the NBA, they definitely haven't done that. Dave, lastly, what high school did you attend? We, we do a thing here which – is fun for me and probably nobody else cares where I like to look up people's high schools and, and then determine who, what, who went to the high school that has the most famous person of anybody we've had on. So your uh, high school is what? I went to, so I went to two high schools, uh, but I graduated from West Point high school in uh, West Point, Virginia. Now that and sounds I might be the most famous person to come from that school. That, that sounds very prestigious by the way, West Point high school. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like it, but no, now, no our, uh, Regular high school, and our our mascot was a pointer dog. Excuse me, like a bird dog. They were literally called the pointer dogs. West Point pointers. Yeah. Yes. That's, okay. Yes. No, hold on. West Point Middle and High School. We got to see if it's big enough. To, it has a Wikipedia page, right? This is in West Point, Virginia. Go. Correct. That's it. Blue Ribbon School in 2012. Let's go. Yeah, you know what? I think you're right because it doesn't even list a notable alumni page. No offense. It's just I am. I am the only notable <laughs> alumni. That does say it's from and the I'm northern. Not, <laughs> it's from the northern neck noble. region. Is that the northern redneck region or just the northern neck region? <laughs> hey, now listen. Just because we have sunny weather and it's humid doesn't mean we're all redneck. Uh, but <laughs> yeah, enough. the northern neck, man. That's where I'm from. Northern neck. Uh, still, I mean, they don't make the ginger ale anymore, but we used to have the best ginger ale. Now, what was your other high school? Uh, Henrico High School. I went there for. For Wait, the first two years. Spell that again. Henrico. H-E-N-R-I-C-O. There's five sentences on the West Point Wikipedia page. Dave, you got to fix that. You got to go in and add some stuff. Come on. 
Uh, we're looking up no, uh, Henrico not. High School, by the way. Uh, yeah. As soon as we come back, I'll see. You might have bailed. You might have bailed <laughs> on better opportunities of, of famous alumni. But I like the fact that this means that you now, you are, in fact, the 2025 guy of West Point High School. That was a solid move on your behalf. I mean, it's true. Uh, I do think that I am um, the most, like, at least the most well-known. I wouldn't even say famous, but might be the most notable alumni for my school. And it's funny. I had this conversation when I was back home for, for Thanksgiving uh, because my, my little brother asked me. But, yeah, I might be the most notable. I graduated in a class of 52 people. That's impressive. It's awesome. Alan Bristow, by Very the way. small town. Uh, former yeah. NBA, NBA general manager Alan Bristow um, from your other high school. Yeah, Alan Bristow. Uh, he used to pop in uh, when I was uh, in basketball practice my freshman year. <laughs> no uh, pressure of, there. Of high school. No, none whatsoever. Dave, uh, we appreciate the time. Very <laughs> Merry Christmas care. to you. Enjoy the games as well. We look forward to having you back. Yeah, you guys as well, and Happy New Year. Everybody be safe. Thanks, right, Dave. Appreciate too. it. Dave DeFore. Nineteen seventy-one, John and essentially Yoko as well, with the Harlem Community Choir. Happy Christmas! The war is over. Happy Xmas, technically, in the way the song is labeled. But there it is. And you had mentioned Jimmy. It is interesting. You know, different songs. Uh, I think this week was the anniversary of the release of "Let It Bleed," and. You can't always get what you want. You know, it has like the London Children's Choir, I think, in it. Like, you, you wonder, you're like, where are those kids now? You know what I mean? <laughs> yes. Yeah, I'm only on one of the most iconic songs of the last century. Uh, joining us now, and I'm sure probably thinking to himself, yeah, they're talking about stuff other than sports. Big surprise. Kevin Bowen, who, of course, is on the morning show with Andy, the wake-up call with KB and Andy, and also is the origin of the fabulous holiday sweatshirt. We three little kings that I'm wearing. Nice. This is courtesy of Kevin Bone. I'm wearing it to get in the holiday spirit. Um, Kevin, first off, Merry Christmas. And I guess for the Colts, one of the gifts they just unwrapped, Michael Pittman now, is available to them. Question is, and you can give us the update, where do things stand now with Jonathan Taylor? Well, first, Merry Christmas to all three of you. And I love that you're rocking that uh, that sweatshirt. That was one of my better finds, honestly. It's fabulous. In the history of. In, uh, in the history of a gift finding, not, not that I have many gems, to be honest with you. I one time bought Maddie a bacon-smelling pillow, and I thought that was going to be the end of our relationship there <laughs> at that point. Um, he practiced both days, Jonathan Taylor, and I, I assume, you know, officially, I, I, I guess it'll be questionable when they come out the final injury report, but my assumption would be as long as things checked out practice-wise and you know, all of a sudden they, you know, oh, he's got to wear this on his right thumb or right hand, that he'd be good to go. Um, now, obviously, I think there still is a bit of uncertainty once you get into the game. You know, it's, I, I can't imagine the Colts, based off what I saw Thursday, that they were going to get too, too aggressive with him in a practice setting, you know, and you know, what slapping at that or hitting at his hand, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but uh, he was, I think, full Thursday. I assume he was full today. We'll await that final injury report and uh, see what his status is coming up on Sunday. So, Kevin, this game with Atlanta, you know, it's interesting because the Falcons make a quarterbacking change. They're going with the guy that beat the Colts the last time, I believe, that he faced them, and Taylor Heineke, and 
you know, he was at Washington then. It, it does feel like to me things are kind of coming together for Indianapolis down the home stretch here, both from their own health standpoint and just kind of in the roster aligning for them as well. Uh, is that me just being in the holiday spirit? No, I, I think there's a lot of truth to that. Um, you know, certainly, I guess we'll start in house. I mean, yeah, I mean, Jonathan Taylor potentially being back and Michael Pittman's absence, you know, only being for a half um, against the Steelers. And, you know, it's almost like you're kind of used to life without Braden Smith right now. I mean, I still think it's a notable loss and he has been ruled out. But, you know, Blake Freeland has now started, what, over half the games probably in his rookie season. So, you know, when you think about it, and maybe I'm off by a number or two, but, you know, the original 22 starters to start the year, you know, Shaq Leonard got benched, so I don't even know if I slot him into the group. But, you know, Anthony Richardson, Dallas Flowers, and Braden Smith, right? I mean, I think those are the only three. Uh, and obviously you've had life with Gardner Minshew and, and Blake Freeland, as I said, for quite some time. And even Dallas Flowers hasn't been in the lineup for several months now. So, yeah, I, I would say, you know, pretty, pretty positive for late December for this to be where you're at from an injury standpoint. And then out of your house or, you know, schedule-wise, uh, it continues to be really manageable. And I've said this all week long. It feels like this is the, you know, 10th week in a row that the Colts are getting ready for an opponent. And there's some story out there about their upcoming opponent of questions about head coach and quarterback future. Like that was Atlanta. That was you know, a little bit of Pittsburgh. That was certainly Carolina, definitely new England. Uh, I'm sure there's some others that would fall on that list. So uh, yeah, I would say in-house outside house, things are uh, pointing in a positive direction. Fan zone Kevin Bowen is our guest. You hear him weekdays 7 to 10 on the wake-up call with KB and Andy. Kevin, I asked this question of Matt Taylor the other day. I want to get your thoughts on it as well. The Colts are, to some extent, a product of the schedule that they've played. But additionally, I think that Shane Steichen, rightfully so, deserves consideration for Coach of the Year. I said this yesterday. I think you can make the argument that it might come down to that award the last game of the season because D'Amico Ryans has also, I think, made a really strong case to be Coach of the Year but when you look at this Colts team, and let's just focus defensively, because there's still clear weaknesses there, especially in the secondary, what is repeatable about this defensive unit, let's say they make the playoffs, that is repeatable against better offenses, against better competition? Boy, it's a great question. Um, I hate to cop out. I, I, I might throw in there, I don't know. Um, Matt said pass rush was... just for context for you, not that you need it, but like that that was Matt's pushback to me was they get at the quarterback at a rate that he thinks is sustainable to their operation defensively if they were to play a better offense. Yeah, and I think that, but I mean, two weeks ago, Jimmy, they don't touch Jake Brown in the entire game. <laughs> right. So I, I just can't say that with like extreme confidence. And, you know, in this league, and I think, you know, the guy that, you know, led the Rams to the victory last night. It's a perfect example of it. And Matthew Stafford, you know, think back to when the Colts played the Rams earlier this year. No one would call Stafford mobile. Uh, no one would call the Rams some great offensive line. And yet in that game, Matthew Stafford was, you know, hardly touched by the Colts because, again, when you play a veteran, experienced quarterback, you know, oftentimes they know <laughs> when enough is enough and when they need to make sure either pre-snap where the ball needs to go very quickly before chaos ensues or even post-snap, you know, knowing when to, you know, say enough is enough on a play. Um, and the beautiful part, it goes back to, I guess, Jake's question is, again, the Colts have played a schedule where those guys haven't really popped up here in the second half of the season. You know, I was thinking about it. If you even look at the final three weeks of the season, you know, from the start of November 
through the end of the year, Gardner Minshew will walk into a game as the more experienced, accomplished quarterback really in every single game since the start of November but one. And I would say Baker Mayfield uh, would be the only one. And even Baker's played for what, you know, four teams in the last couple of years. So um, that's where you do have the schedule benefit. But, you know, if you are saying, okay, what do they look like in a – you know, January game against whatever, Mahomes or, you know, Tua or Josh Allen or whoever you want to throw, Lamar Jackson, whoever you want to throw into that, that's where I still think it's a bit of an unknown. Sure, you beat the Ravens earlier this year. I think you have to acknowledge the Ravens are obviously really, really beat up in that game as well. So uh, that's where, you know, from a defensive standpoint, certainly the pass rush, you know, has been very solid this season to better than solid when you look at the sack numbers. Uh, but if you were comparing that to playoff caliber passing offenses teams, I think you'd be naive to act like a lot of those have been on the schedule here, especially as of late. Kevin Bowen is our guest. You hear him in the morning with Andy Sweeney, of course, on the wake-up call with KB and Andy. Kevin, this year, whether it be the schedule, whether it be you know just the things we've talked about, give me an area that if you are Chris Ballard, it is very important for you to be very cautious going into next season to not maybe be a little bit too comfortable of that area of the roster. In other words, an area where, based on this year's results, it would be easy for Chris Ballard to determine that he doesn't need to address it. But in reality, it might be a little bit of an area of a paper tiger that they still need to shore up heading into next season despite the fact that they've had kind of good success on borrowed time with it this year? Yeah, that's a good one. I would probably, honestly, and not to turn this into a pass rush conversation, but I'd probably go there. I I still think you are lacking um, a dynamic edge speed rusher, and I think you've been lacking that probably since Robert Mathis hung it up, you know, a decade ago. Um, I think that is just such a – you know, difficult ingredient to find, but if you have it, it, it can give such an added dimension to your defense, to your pass rush, to creating big plays, you know, changing games, et cetera, et cetera. So that would be the one area that I would point to, even with, you know, at times a very effective pass rush, at times one of the better ones in the league. Um, I still think that doesn't include, again, that really, really special speed rusher that, you know, opposing teams have to pay a lot of attention to uh, focusing about, I, I always believe that you can never have enough pass rush. Um, and if you look at just the little bit of a preview of the quarterbacks you're going to face next year, it, it's quite the contrast from the lack of quarterback talent I think you face this year. So this kind of gets back into the question that you just had. So uh, I think there are a lot of areas that you feel better about. Um, left tackle, I think you feel better about. Um, you know, you could even say wide out a little bit. Um, but I would say, Going in the off season, I, I I would put edge rusher atop that list. Again, speed rusher, like a very specific type of skill set. There are a lot of good. I mean, Dio Dangbo is taking a huge step. And Tyquan Lewis once again is showing when healthy, um, he can be a very solid player for you. Samson Evacom was a great signing by Chris Ballard in free agency. But specifically, uh, I, I'd go with that speed edge guy. You know the um, the Falcons are kind of enigmatic to me, Kevin, because. They're, they're a little below, obviously, where the Colts are, but they, they, they kind of remind me of the Colts in the fact that they're still feeling their way through. They haven't had, obviously, the success maybe sustained that Indianapolis has this year. Um, they certainly have bigger question at quarterback, no doubt about that. But what do they do well? 
you know, in, in talking to the Colts this week and being there, like in, in talking to them after practices and hearing from Shane Steichen, the area of Atlanta that Indianapolis is most focused on is blank. Yeah, I guess I'll start here before I answer the question. I, I feel like this is a very Jake Query type of question that you would bring up of, you know, drop, you know, whatever. Somebody in Vegas, go up to three random people totally. and say, you know, which NFL team do you know the least amount of players on? Uh, I got it one today already. Atlanta Falcons. <laughs> Jimmy got I, one of those I questions already today. Already, today. Yeah. Yeah. Of course, yeah. I'm, I'm sure you got it at 1201, Jimmy. <laughs> um, I mean, seriously, like, I, I feel like they're, like, the most nondescript roster. The only thing anybody knows about the Falcons is I regretted drafting those guys as high as I did in fantasy. Oh, that's so like true. That's, I mean, that's uh, that's like the only thing I know about the Falcons. Um, defensively, though, they deserve credit. I mean, there's several, you know, I think categories, areas of their team you can point to. Uh, again, a very nondescript defense. Their best player is a Fort Wayne guy in Jesse Bates, um, and, and he is a name. But outside of that, I mean, they really have nobody of note. Um, you know, from a fanfare standpoint. So uh, defensively, they've had a lot of nice moments. I think in particular, they've been pretty good, you know, situationally. Um, so, yeah, th- th- that's probably where I would go. Again, offensively, it's a very committed rushing attack. Uh, obviously, their quarterback play has been wildly inconsistent. I don't think their offensive line is anything to write home about. They've got skill guys that have been drafted really, really high. And, again, fantasy football owners probably regret – selecting them where they did as well. But um, that's pretty much what they've been. You know, it is interesting, though, if you look at their schedule. In the last two months, they've won two games, Saints and Jets. The five, I think they have five losses in the last two months, and all of them are by five points or less. So, I mean, they've been right there. Um, a guy I went to high school with, Kelly Ford, does a great job with, like, looking at some of these analytics. And he, he's probably more of a college football analytics guy but he did one for the nfl where if you flip the one possession for every single game this season so all the one possession games if you just flipped it the other way so you know boom matt gay misses a field goal in baltimore you lose that game but you know cleveland doesn't beat you on the final play of the game if you flipped all those um i think atlanta would have i believe it's two more wins the colts would have three more losses so it just kind of goes to show you that you know it could I'm trying to, like, wrap my head around why does Vegas have Atlanta favored in this game? Like, from an injury report standpoint, I don't understand it. I, I, I don't – it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. And I guess maybe they're thinking, you know, in a one-score game, the home team I, – I, I don't know. But uh, defensively, to answer your question, Jake, but certainly it's a very nondescript team that's been in a lot of close games and has not taken advantage of a very easy schedule in the NFC South. Yeah, it's a play of the day already a, a teaser for the audience towards the end of the show i mean it colts at plus 112 or whatever it is 115 i'm gonna take that to the bank and have a very merry christmas kevin bowen is our guest <laughs> follow him on twitter at kbo at 1070 uh kb on nfl live the other day they highlighted that the colts in the league right now are in a three-way tie with the niners and the dolphins for most games with 200 passing yards and 150 rushing yards in fact they're one shy the franchise record set back in 1958. The only way I know how to ask it is why slash how has that happened with this unit and what is it a product of? Is it the schedule? Is it the fact that they're forced to kind of play balance with Minshew being capped at what he can do? Is there anything you can individually pinpoint to for why that's the case? And if not, how surprised are you that they're in this position to set a franchise record even though they care about bigger goals than just a 
weird stat in the Colts record books. Okay, I caught like the last ninety five percent of it. What was the what was the stat? Niners and Dolphins. Niners and Dolphins were... each have five games this year, as do the Colts, with two hundred passing yards and one hundred and fifty rushing yards. For the Colts, that's one away from tying a Got franchise it. record set in nineteen fifty eight. Why has that happened with this unit? Boy, that's a that's a wild balance stat there. Uh I would say my first answer is Shane Sykin. I mean, I, I think he's just brilliant offensively. Um, I would start there. Um, I do think your offensive line has certainly made an improvement from last season. You know, I, I'd probably have to take a closer look at, like, you know, how many of those games are Richardson involved, how many of those games were not. But I would start there. Um, I, I just think Shane has done such a great job in getting this offense to, you know, have consistency for the most part, um, you know, having a decent amount of balance as well. Uh, boy, that, that that really surprises me that uh, that is the case. Um, but I would go there. You know, it's not like, you know, when you look at the Niners, or you look at the Dolphins, I mean, you talk about some explosive playmakers that can single-handedly, you know, kind of skew those numbers a little bit. I, I don't think anyone would call the Colts skill group that. So They don't belong yeah, in that I mean, group? I, I that, would, that's not right in the same breath? You don't think so? <laughs> I, I would say it's not. Um but, again, I, I just think Shane is a guy that, you know, his pedigree certainly indicated there was something there. You know, obviously the quick comment would be, well, he's not bringing the Eagle skill group here, uh, and he's not, but clearly this dude knows what he's doing. So, um, yeah, I, I would I would start with Shane, and a huge reason why he's on, you know, any sort of coach of the year list and very high on any coach of the year list amidst, you know, all of the running back, you know, injuries or obviously Richardson or, you know, they've had a lot of shuffling on the O-line even, especially Braden Smith. Uh, so, yeah, that that would be my first answer. Kevin, when you look, and I mentioned this earlier this week, but I want your thought on it. You kind of touched on it there, but when you look at the fact that you're going like four deep on your running back depth chart and getting quality runs, you know, in their game the other night, is that – what percent of that is because of just Shane Steichen's ability to call plays and know when to call them? What percent of that is the line was, to use the kids' term, balling out for the running backs? And what percent of that also is to show that running back, as you and I even discussed when we were together in the mornings, is a position that's pretty fungible and easily replaced? Yeah, I, I would say in some way you probably check all three of those boxes. But I thought specific to Sunday or Saturday, I should say, it was your O-line. You know, there was that stat out there of, you know, yards before contact. It was an astonishing high number for the Colts in week 16. And, you know, I think anytime you have young and experienced backs, if you can all of a sudden create, you know, a couple of yards of, you know, heads of steam, if you will, to where they don't have to make a whole lot of, sort of decisions early on in a play that's going to greatly help them. And obviously it'll allow them to, you know, create a little bit of head of steam and, you know, make some big runs. I mean, I think anytime in a game you have two running backs have as much production as each of them did. And it's not like either of them had a 50 or 60 yarder that can kind of skew it. When you have consistent methodical running success with two different style runners, to me, that is a big, big compliment of your rushing attack. And, you know, it goes back to the Cincinnati game. You know, just two weeks ago, and, you know, I said this a little bit earlier, and the inability to touch Jake Browning in that game, I thought it might have been your worst trench game of the season. You know, when you think back to Cincinnati and the inability to run it, the inability to protect Minshew, and then vice versa, you couldn't touch Jake Browning and, and Joe Mixon and Chase Brown each had a nice day. And then you flip that, you know, six days, 
forward. And then all of a sudden, you know, after you got through that first quarter when, you know, Minshew was sacked on each of the first three series of the game, then, you know, T.J. Watt was a ghost the final, you know, couple of uh, quarters. And they didn't make any plays in the run game whatsoever. And you obviously got after them and, and stopped them with the run as well. So I'd say specific to last week, yeah, it is a reminder of when your O-line is humming like that, you know, it, it doesn't matter too, too much. Now, are there some plays where, you know, a, a eight-yard gain for Trey Sermon might have been 18 for Jonathan Taylor? Certainly. But for the most part, you can have a pretty consistent positive run game if your O-line's paving the way as much as it did last week. Kev, I remember Thanksgiving you always wore the turkey hat, which I liked. I, I thought it was kind of fun. Mm-hmm. I think your mother-in-law might have given you that. I can't recall. Um I, and I and my apologies for for forgetting this. Do you wear a Santa hat? What did you What did you wear today? Just a regular Santa hat? Yeah, I guess the YouTube stream must have been down at the Quarry household early in the. Early uh, it, in the morning, it was but... it was up, but I was not. Got it. Okay. Well, good to see Boo had it had it working here <laughs> early in the morning. Uh, yeah, l- l- little Santa action today. Shout out to um, former. Uh, sales colleague of ours, Julie Sin. She was, I want to make sure I give her credit. She was actually the one that uh, created both of those hats. So I love wearing them uh, in the final show before Thanksgiving and Christmas. So this one fits great. You know, I I'd probably have put on a handful of pounds in this 2023 season. So maybe I just need to kind of keep in that hibernation weight around Christmas time each year. That, that was nice and snug. And uh, yeah, I thought it looked great on the YouTube uh, stream earlier today. <laughs> I, by the way, I, Literally, as you were talking, and, and you know, I don't know if you know this or not, but the phones now, they can hear us, right? They, they know everything we're saying, and then you get, ad- as you were talking, a thing popped up for me for an ad for a new Tiger Woods knit sweater and a double XL. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. I, I'll, will you somehow send that link to me, and I'll send it to Shannon in case there is any- <laughs> <laughs> shopping that is needed all right nike men's tiger woods knit crew golf sweater white double xl there you go that's He's all back. you now i i must sneak this in with elijah answering the phone i'm sure doing an outstanding job producing for you it did get me thinking back to when elijah um filled in or maybe back when he honestly interned uh with us um i seem to recall at one point did you post on elijah's girlfriend's facebook wall wasn't there something along? Uh, no, he just followed her. He didn't. I don't think he did anything no, no, with it. No, you, uh, your girlfriend sent me a friend request. Wasn't that what it was? No, you sent a friend mm. request to her. I know what it was. I know what it was. <laughs> you had said you had a girlfriend. I wasn't necessarily being a doubter, but Kevin, I believe actually that we challenged Elijah, and he gave us the Facebook page of his girlfriend, to which right. I Facebook friended her, and then I think actually she sent me a wink emoji in the DMs, mm-hmm. and uh, and that yeah. was when I decided that probably I was in an arena I didn't need to be in as a 50-year-old, and I bailed. Yeah. I th- isn't that right, Elijah? That is that is 100% factual. Yeah. <laughs> I thought, Elijah, I thought Jake poked her on Facebook. Is that still a thing? Still yeah, I, yeah you can still poke people. And can you really? Yes, and it's weird when it happens, because I think my uncle poked me once on Facebook, and I was not sure what the heck he was trying to get out of that. <laughs> okay. Oh, boy. They'll bring well, charges for good, that like yeah, you no be careful, kidding good careful luck to that. you on christmas elijah how about elijah though kevin like you want to talk about i mean do you remember elijah when he first came around here he was what a freshman in college maybe even in high school and was basically shadowing and interning with us and then during the commercial breaks 
telling us about how he was, I, I think, recapturing the 1922 National League football seasons with like <laughs> true. plastic helmets. Yep. And now here he is filling in, and the guys that literally Elijah is like the he's like the Trey Sermon of us, right? I mean, his number's called, and here he is, right? Yeah. No, that's a that's a great description. I know he, uh, boy, uh, beyond the bricks. I feel like Elijah was made for that with all the trivia you guys would talk about the Indianapolis 500, along with yes, remaking the you know Packers and Chiefs Super Bowl, like, <laughs> whatever it was back in the day. Yeah, he considers that modern era. Elijah does. I do I do? <laughs> I actually um, just finished the Rams from 1967. By the way, <laughs> Kevin, what's the holiday look like for you, just in terms of what you are are doing and what you have planned, and are you done with your shopping, etc.? Yeah, I have done. Um, you know, I said this earlier today. I don't think there's a human being that is a worse. Uh, I'm trying to think of the right word. No one does anything worse in the world than I do at wrapping gifts. It's terrible. Um, it, it, I'm I'm it, right there with you, man. It is. I don't. I mean, get like it. I'm looking at this gift card I have wrapped for my uncle Pat right here, and I mean, it just looks like the worst geometry project you've ever seen. I mean, it is just so pathetic by me. Um, so yeah, I have, I've wrapped them. I mean, they're not pretty. Maddie will be appalled at some of it, but I'm good to go. Um, certainly Christmas Eve afternoon, spend watching a little Colts and we've got to put one of Rosie's presents together for Christmas day. And yeah, I can't wait. Santa's been good to us, I think. So hopefully he will show up and, um, yeah. You know, Matt Taylor told us, Kevin, that when he was a kid, Santa at his house, um, and I, Matt must have lived in a neighborhood. I, I think he probably lived on a street where there were a lot of houses, so Santa didn't – or I'm sorry, where there were fewer houses, so Santa had more time. But apparently at Matt Taylor's house, Santa assembled – left all of the gifts under the tree unwrapped but already assembled and ready to go. That's a forethinking Santa, right? Yeah, I, I would say, we, you know, we kind of had a mix and a match with, with Santa. I, I just assumed that those were years where, you know – supply chain issues might have you know impacted Santa a little bit versus not so that's kind of how I chalked it up but I do remember one year uh we got like a three in play it was an air hockey plastic little ping pong table and a shuffleboard and that thing was awesome and Santa put that together yeah that's very yeah Santa I mean I I probably just depends on whether or not you're at the Santa probably goes different routes so if he goes North America first you probably get him more accelerated, but if you get him on a night where he's already gone through and he's hit Africa and Australia and everything else, maybe he's got a little extra time, puts it together. That's awesome. Nothing wrong with that. Well, or you know, you know, maybe he kind of judges off how good the cookies are. Cookies are good. <laughs> I, oh, I thought about Those that as well. Together, yeah. You know, I, if all of a sudden Rudolph spits out a carrot, you might not have your gifts put together. I, I, I did think about that. That is a, that is a fair play. Hey, KB. Speaking of gifts that keep on giving, I want to get your rapid reaction to this. Uh, New England Patriots head coach and beloved figure around here in Indianapolis, Bill Belichick, apparently told the media today that the kicking footballs used in the first half of Sunday's 27-17 loss to the Chiefs were underinflated by two, two and a half pounds. He said, quote, we don't have anything to do with it. Were we aware of it? Yeah, definitely. As I understand it, they were all the same. I don't know what the explanation is. It was the same for both teams. Uh, your thoughts on underinflated footballs coming back in vogue around the Patriots in 2023? Oh, my God. Hey, will you guys call Bob Kravitz and get his thoughts <laughs> on that? Um yeah, boy, uh, that is quite the story. So underplayed, that was your Chiefs, right, Jimmy? Correct. It was against Kansas City, and it was just in the first wow. half for the balls that were used for kicking field goals. 
two, well, two and a half pounds. I think you could say this about the AFC title game in 2014. They could have had a porcupine at the ball that day, and I think New England still would have beat <laughs> the Colts by 30. And they could have had a porcupine on Sunday, and I think the Chiefs still would have beat the Patriots. So those are my two thoughts on PSI. I'm just worried about the inflation of my tires. This Good time call. Of year. Good call. You know, I don't know if you know this, but properly inflated tires can save you up to two miles per gallon, just do, so you know. Do you have an emergency awareness kit in your trunk, Kevin, just in case, you know, one of those tires goes kaput in a no, I, wilderness-like I, I setting? Have, I would say each winter I budget probably $15 to the side to know that I'm going to stop at random gas stations and uh, fill up my tires. Listen, throughout for the- Christmas, I'll get both you guys as a stocking stuff for a membership to AAA. I already have one. Triple A's a lifesaver, Jimmy. You should know this. Anytime that you got that problem, they are right there for you. They always are. That's what we love. Kevin, enjoy <laughs> the holidays. I know um, hopefully Santa's good to you guys, and I know it's going to be a busy weekend, of course, on Christmas Eve with the Colts game as well. But uh, happy holidays, Merry Christmas, and then you guys are back at it on Tuesday. Are you both back in on Tuesday? Yep, yep, Tuesday. Should have Rick Carlisle as usual. So, yeah, we are both back in on Tuesday. You guys have a great Christmas as well. Happy holidays to all of you. and. Uh, all of our listeners, of course. Much appreciated. Kevin Bowen, you hear him on the wake-up call. Those conversations with Rick Carlisle, by the way, are both informative and fun as well.